no struggle is a meaningful struggle. One set of instances is mere toil, and another starts to seem empty after it's cast in later light. This is Nighttime Stories. I'm H.B. Knightley. The story goes that Edith Wharton was a writer not many years after she could walk. Monard we shared this in common. While I may have attempted to be, Wharton's nose was there in earnest, seemingly from the very beginning. She spent her life in stubborn and delightfully unbehaved pursuit of literature, or so I've heard, and her material was brownstones, cobbles, and the role that was given to her, one she sought to push and break, and where she couldn't do either, slowly grow around and out of, like a tree on a fence line. But that's sort of another story entirely. Once ink is on the page, it tends to turn into something else. If you will now, put your nose against this. The First Half of Afterward, by Edith Wharton, first published 1910 in Century Magazine. It's something else. Chapter 1 Oh, there is one, of course, but you'll never know it. The assertion, laughingly flung out six months earlier in a bright June garden, came back to Mary Boyne with a sharp perception of its latent significance as she stood, in the December dusk, waiting for the lamps to be brought into the library. The words had been spoken by their friend Alita Stare as they sat at tea on her lawn at Pangbourne, in reference to the very house of which the library in question was the central, the pivotal feature. Mary Boyne and her husband, in a quest for a country place in one of the southern or southwestern counties, had on their arrival in England carried their problem straight to Alita Stare, who had successfully solved it in her own case. But it was not until they had rejected, almost capriciously, several practical and judicious suggestions that she threw it out. Well, there's Ling in Dorsetshire. It belongs to Hugo's cousins. You can get it for a song. The reason she gave for its being obtainable on these terms, its remoteness from a station, its lack of electric light, hot water pipes, and other vulgar necessities, were exactly those pleading in its favor with two romantic Americans perversely in search of the economic drawbacks, which were associated in their tradition with unusual architectural felicities. I should never believe I was living in an old house unless I was thoroughly uncomfortable, Ned Boyne, the more extravagant of the two, had jocosely insisted. The least hint of convenience would make me think it had been bought out of an exhibition, the pieces numbered and set up again and they had proceeded to enumerate with humorous precision their various suspicions and exactions, refusing to believe that the house their cousin recommended was really Tudor till they learned it had no heating system, or that the village church was literally in the grounds till she assured them of the deplorable uncertainty of the water supply. "'It's too uncomfortable to be true,' Edward Boyne had continued to exult as the avowal of each disadvantage was successively wrung from her but he had cut short his rhapsody to ask, with a sudden relapse to distrust. And the ghost? You've been concealing from us the fact that there is no ghost? Mary at the moment had laughed with him, yet almost with her laugh, being possessed of several sets of independent perceptions, had noted a sudden flatness of tone in Alita's answering hilarity. Oh, Dorsetshire's full of ghosts, you know. Yes, yes, but that won't do. I don't want to have to drive ten miles to see somebody else's ghost. I want one of my own on the premises. Is there a ghost at Lang? His rejoinder had made Alita laugh again, and it was then that she had flung back tantalizingly. Oh, there is one, of course, but you'll never know it. Never know it? Boyne pulled her up. But what in the world constitutes a ghost except the fact of its being known for one? I can't say. 
but that's the story. That there's a ghost, but that nobody knows it's a ghost? Well, not till afterward at any rate. Till afterward? Not till long, long afterward. But if it's once been identified as an unearthly visitant, why hasn't its signalment been handed down in the family? How has it managed to preserve its incognito? Alita could only shake her head. Don't ask me, but it has. And then suddenly, Mary spoke up, as if from some cavernous depth of divination. Suddenly, long afterward, one says to oneself, That was it? She was oddly startled at the sepulchral sound with which her question fell on the banter of the other two. She saw the shadow of the same surprise flit across Alita's clear pupils. I suppose so. One just has to wait. Oh, hang waiting, Ned broke in. Life's too short for a ghost who can only be enjoyed in retrospect. Can we do better than that, Mary? But it turned out that in the event they were not destined to, for within three months of their conversation with Mrs. Stair, they were living at Ling, and the life they had yearned for to the point of planning it out in all its daily details had actually begun for them. It was to sit in the thick December dusk, by just such a wide-hooded fireplace, under just such black oak rafters, with the sense that beyond the mullion panes the downs were darkening to a deeper solitude. It was for the ultimate indulgence in such sensations that Mary Boyne had endured for nearly fourteen years the soul-deadening ugliness of the Middle West, and that Boyne had ground on doggedly at his engineering till, with a suddenness that still made her blink. The prodigious windfall of the Blue Star Mine had put them at a stroke in possession of life, and the leisure to taste it. They had never for a moment meant their new state to be one of idleness, but they meant to give themselves only to harmonious activities. She had her vision of painting and gardening, against a background of grey walls. He dreamed of the production of his long-planned book on the economic basis of culture, and with such absorbing work ahead, no existence could be too sequestered. They could not get far enough from the world, or plunge deep enough into the past. Dorsetshire had attracted them from the first by a semblance of remoteness out of all proportion to its geographical position. But to the Boynes, it was one of the ever-recurring wonders of the whole incredibly compressed island, a nest of counties, as they put it, that for the production of its effects, so little of a given quality went so far that so few miles made a distance, and so short a distance, a difference. It's that, Ned had once enthusiastically explained, that gives such depth to their effects, such relief to their least contrasts. They've been able to lay the butter so thick on every exquisite mouthful. The butter had certainly been laid on thick at Ling. The old gray house, hidden under a shoulder of the downs, had almost all the finer marks of commerce with a protracted past. The mere fact that it was neither large nor exceptional made it, to the Boynes, abound the more richly in its special sense, the sense of having been for centuries a deep, dim reservoir of life. The life had probably not been of the most vivid order. For long periods, no doubt, it had fallen as noiselessly into the past as the quiet drizzle of autumn fell, hour after hour, into the green fish pond, between the ewes, but these backwaters of existence sometimes breed, in their sluggish depths, strange acuities of emotion, and Mary Boyne had felt in the first the occasional brush of an intenser memory. 
The feeling had never been stronger than on the December afternoon when, waiting in the library for the belated lamps, she rose from her seat and stood among the shadows of the hearth. Her husband had gone off, after luncheon, for one of his long tramps on the downs. She had noticed of late that he preferred to be unaccompanied on these occasions, and in the tried security of their personal relations, had been driven to conclude that his book was bothering him, and that he needed the afternoons to turn over in solitude the problems left from the morning's work. Certainly the book was not going as smoothly as she had imagined it would, and the lines of perplexity between his eyes had never been there in his engineering days. Then he had often looked exhausted, to the verge of illness, but the native demon of worry had never branded his brow. Yet the few pages he had so far read to her, the introduction and a synopsis of the opening chapter, gave evidence of a firm possession of his subject and a deepening confidence in his powers. The fact threw her into deeper perplexity, since, now that he had done with business and its disturbing contingencies, the one other possible element of anxiety was eliminated, Unless it were his health, then? But physically he had gained since they had come to Dorsetshire, grown robuster, ruddier, and fresher-eyed. It was only within a week that she had felt in him the undefinable change that made her restless in his absence, and his tongue tied in his presence as though it were she who had a secret to keep from him. The thought that there was a secret somewhere between them struck her with a sudden smart rap of wonder, and she looked about her down the dim, long room. Can it be the house, she mused? The room itself might have been full of secrets. They seemed to be piling themselves up, as evening fell, like the layers and layers of velvet shadow dropping from the low ceiling, the dusky walls of books, the smoke-blurred sculpture of the hooded hearth. Why, of course. The house is haunted, she reflected. The ghost, Alita's imperceptible ghost, after figuring largely in the banter of their first month or two at Ling, had been gradually discarded as too ineffectual for imaginative use. Mary had, indeed, as became the tenant of a haunted house, made the customary inquiries among her few rural neighbors. But beyond a vague, they do say so, ma'am, the villagers had nothing to impart. The elusive specter had apparently never had sufficient identity for a legend to crystallize about it and after a time the Boynes had laughingly set the matter down to their profit and loss account, agreeing that Lang was one of the few houses good enough in itself to dispense with supernatural enhancements. And I suppose, poor ineffectual demon, that's why it beats its beautiful wings in vain in the void, Mary had laughingly concluded. Or rather, Ned answered in the same strain, why, amid so much that's ghostly, it can never affirm its separate existence as the ghost? and thereupon their invisible housemate had finally dropped out of their references, which were numerous enough to make them promptly unaware of the loss. Now, as she stood on the hearth, the subject of their earlier curiosity revived in her with a new sense of its meaning, a sense gradually acquired through close daily contact with the scene of the lurking mystery. It was the house itself, of course, that possessed the ghost-seeing faculty, that communed visually but secretly with its own past and if one could only get into close enough communion with the house, one might surprise its secret, and acquire the ghost sight on one's own account. Perhaps in his long, solitary hours in this very room, where she never trespassed till the afternoon, her husband had acquired it already, and was silently carrying the dread weight of whatever it had revealed to him. 
Mary was too well-versed in the code of the spectral world not to know that one could not talk about the ghosts one saw. To do so was almost as great a breach of good breeding as to name a lady in a club. But this explanation did not really satisfy her. What, after all, except for the fun of the frisson? She reflected. Would he really care for any of their old ghosts? And then she was thrown back once more on the fundamental dilemma, the fact that one's greater or lesser susceptibility to spectral influences had no particular bearing on the case, since, when one did see a ghost at Ling, one did not know it. Not till long afterward, Alita had said. Well, supposing Ned had seen one when they first came, and had known only within the last week what had happened to him. More and more under the spell of the hour, she threw back her searching thoughts to the early days of their tenancy, but at first only to recall a gay confusion of unpacking, settling, arranging of books, and calling to each other from remote corners of the house, as treasure after treasure of their habitation revealed itself to them. It was in this particular connection that she presently recalled a certain soft afternoon of the previous October, when, passing from the first rapturous flurry of exploration to a detailed inspection of the old house. She had pressed, like a novel heroine, a panel that opened at her touch, on a narrow flight of stairs leading to an unsuspected flat ledge of the roof, the roof which, from below, seemed to slope away on all sides too abruptly for any but practiced feet to scale. The view from this hidden coin was enchanting, and she had flown down to snatch Ned from his papers and give him the freedom of her discovery. She remembered still how, standing on the narrow ledge, he had passed his arm about her while their gaze flew to the long, tossed horizon line of the downs, and then dropped contentedly back to trace the arabesque of yew hedges about the fish pond and the shadow of the cedar on the lawn. And now the other way, he had said, gently turning her about within his arm, and closely pressed to him she had absorbed, like some long, satisfying draught, the picture of the gray-walled court, the squat lions on the gates, and the lime avenue reaching up to the high road under the downs. It was just then, while they gazed and held each other, that she had felt his arm relax, and heard a sharp, Hello! that made her turn to glance at him. Distinctly, yes, she now recalled she had seen, as she glanced, a shadow of anxiety, of perplexity, rather, fall across his face and, following his eyes, had beheld the figure of a man, a man in loose, grayish clothes, as it appeared to her, who was sauntering down the lime avenue to the court, the tentative gait of a stranger seeking his way. Her short-sighted eyes had given her but a blurred impression of slightness and grayness, with something foreign, or at least unlocal, in the cut of the figure or its garb. But her husband had apparently seen more, seen enough to make him push past her with a sharp, Wait! and dashed down the twisting stairs without pausing to give her a hand for the descent. A slight tendency to dizziness obliged her, after a provisional clutch at the chimney against which they had been leaning, to follow him down more cautiously, and when she had reached the attic landing, she paused again for a less definite reason, leaning over the oak banister to strain her eyes through the silence of the brown, sun-flecked depths below. She lingered there still. Somewhere in those depths, she heard the closing of a door, then, mechanically impelled, she went down the shallow flights of steps till she reached the lower hall. The front door stood open on the mild sunlight of the court, and hall and court were empty. 
The library door was open too, and after listening in vain for any sound of voices within, she quickly crossed the threshold and found her husband alone, vaguely fingering the papers on his desk. He looked up as if surprised at her precipitate entrance. The shadow of anxiety had passed from his face, leaving it even, as she fancied, a little brighter and clearer than usual. "'What was it? Who was it?' she asked. "'Who?' he repeated, with the surprise still all on his side. "'The man we saw coming toward the house?' He seemed honestly to reflect. "'The man?' Why, I thought I saw Peters. I dashed after him to say a word about the stable drains. But he had disappeared before I could get down. Disappeared? Why, he seemed to be walking so slowly when we saw him. Boyne shrugged his shoulders. So I thought. But he must have got up steam in the interval. What do you say to our trying a scramble up Melton Steep before sunset? That was all. At the time, the occurrence had been less than nothing had indeed been immediately obliterated by the magic of their first vision from Belden Steep, a height which they had dreamed of climbing ever since they had first seen its bare spine heaving itself from the low roof of Ling. Doubtless it was the mere fact of the other incidents having occurred on the very day of their ascent to Melden that had kept it stored away in the unconscious fold of association from which it now emerged, for in itself it had no mark of the portentous, at the moment, there could have been nothing more natural than that Ned should dash himself from the roof in the pursuit of dilatory tradesmen. It was the period when they were always on the watch for one or the other of the specialists employed about the place, always lying in wait for them, and dashing out at them with questions, reproaches, or reminders. And certainly in the distance, the grey figure had looked like Peter's. Yet now as she reviewed the rapid scene, she felt her husband's explanation of it to have been invalidated by the look of anxiety on his face. Why had the familiar appearance of Peters made him anxious? Why, above all, if it was such prime necessity to confer with that authority on the subject of the stable drains, had the failure to find him produced such a look of relief? Mary could not say that any one of these considerations had occurred to her at the time, yet from the promptness with which they had now marshaled themselves at her summons, she had a sudden sense that they must all along have been there, waiting their hour. Chapter 2 Weary with her thoughts, she moved toward the window. The library was now completely dark, and she was surprised to see how much faint light the outer world still held. As she peered out into it, across the court, a figure shaped itself in the tapering perspective of bare lines. It looked a mere blot of deeper gray in the grayness. And for an instant, as it moved toward her, her heart thumped to the thought, It's the ghost. She had time in that long instant to feel suddenly that the man of whom, two months earlier, she had a brief, distant vision from the roof, was now, at his predestined hour, about to reveal himself as not having been Peter's, and her spirit sank under the impending fear of the disclosure. But almost within the next tick of the clock, the ambiguous figure gaining substance and character, showed itself, even to her weak sight, as her husband's, and she turned away to meet him, as he entered, with the confession of her folly. It's really too absurd, she laughed out from the threshold. But I never can remember. Remember what? Boyne questioned as they drew together. That when one sees the Ling ghost, one never knows it. Her hand was on his sleeve, and he kept it there, but with no response in his gesture 
or in the lines of his exhausted, preoccupied face. Did you think you'd seen it? he asked, after an appreciable interval. Why, I actually took you for it, my dear, my mad determination to spot it. Me? Just now? His arm dropped away, and he turned from her with a faint echo of her laugh. Really, dearest, you'd better give it up. That's the best you can do. Yes, I give it up. I give it up. Have you? She asked, turning round on him abruptly. The parlor maid had entered with letters and a lamp, and the light struck up into Boyne's face as he bent above the tray she presented. Have you? Mary perversely insisted, when the servant had disappeared on her errand of illumination. Have I what? He rejoined absently, the light bringing out the sharp stamp of worry between his brows as he turned over the letters. Given up trying to see the ghost. Her heart beat a little at the experiment she was making. Her husband, laying his letters aside, moved away into the shadow of the hearth. I never tried, he said, tearing open the wrapper of a newspaper. Well, of course, Mary persisted. The exasperating thing is that there's no use trying, since one can't be sure till so long afterward. He was unfolding the paper, as if he had hardly heard her. But after a pause, during which the sheets rustled spasmodically between his hands, he lifted his head to say abruptly, "'Have you any idea how long?' Mary had sunk into a low chair beside the fireplace. From her seat she looked up, startled, at her husband's profile, which was darkly projected against the circle of lamplight. "'No, none. "'Have you?' she retorted." repeating her former phrase with an added keenness of intention. Boyne crumpled the paper into a bunch, and then inconsequently turned back with it toward the lamp. Lord, no. I only meant, he explained with a faint tinge of impatience. Is there any legend, any tradition as to that? Not that I know of, she answered, but the impulse to add. What makes you ask? was checked by the reappearance of the parlor-maid with tea and a second lamp. With the dispersal of shadows and the repetition of the daily domestic office, Mary Boyne felt herself less oppressed by that sense of something mutely imminent which had darkened her solitary afternoon. For a few moments she gave herself silently to the details of her task, and when she looked up from it, she was struck to the point of bewilderment by the change in her husband's face. He had seated himself near the farther lamp, and was absorbed in the perusal of his letters. But was it something he had found in them, or merely the shifting of her own point of view, that had restored his features to their normal aspect? The longer she looked, the more definitely the change affirmed itself. The lines of painful tension had vanished, and such traces of fatigue as lingered were of the kind easily attributable to steady mental effort. He glanced up, as if drawn by her gaze, and met her eyes with a smile. I'm dying for my tea, you know. And here's a letter for you, he said. She took the letter he held out in exchange for the cup she preferred him, and, returning to her seat, broke the seal with the languid gesture of the reader, whose interests are all enclosed in the circle of one cherished presence. Her next conscious motion was that of starting to her feet, the letter falling to them as she rose while she held out to her husband a long newspaper clipping. "'Ned, what's this? What does it mean?' 
He had risen at the same instant, almost as if hearing her cry before she uttered it. And for a perceptible space of time, he and she studied each other, like adversaries watching for an advantage, across the space between her chair and his desk. "'What's what? You fairly made me jump,' Boyne said at length, moving toward her with a sudden, half-exasperated laugh. The shadow of apprehension was on his face again, not now a look of fixed foreboding, but a shifting vigilance of lips and eyes that gave her the sense of his feeling himself invisibly surrounded. Her hand shook so that she could hardly give him the clipping. This article, from the Waukesha Sentinel, that a man named Elwell has brought suit against you? That there was something wrong about the Blue Star Mine? I can't understand more than half. They continued to face each other as she spoke, and to her astonishment she saw that her words had the almost immediate effect of dissipating the strained watchfulness of his look. Oh, that! He glanced down the printed slip, and then folded it with the gesture of one who handles something harmless and familiar. What's the matter with you this afternoon, Mary? I thought you'd got bad news. She stood before him with her undefinable terror subsiding slowly, under the reassuring touch of his composure. You knew about this, then? It's all right? Certainly I knew about it, and it's all right. But what is it? I don't understand. What does this man accuse you of? Oh, pretty nearly every crime in the calendar. Boyne had tossed the clipping down, and thrown himself comfortably into an armchair near the fire. Do you want to hear the story? It's not particularly interesting. Just a squabble over interest in the Blue Star. But who is the Selwell? I don't even know the name. Oh, he's a fellow I put into it. Gave him a hand up. I told you all about him at the time. I dare say I must have forgotten. Vainly she strained back against her memories. But if you helped him, why does he make this return? Oh, probably some lawyer got a hold of him and talked him over. It's all rather technical and complicated. I thought that kind of thing bored you. His wife felt a sting of compunction. Theoretically, she deprecated the American wife's detachment from her husband's professional interests but in practice she had always found it difficult to fix her attention on Boyne's report of the transactions, in which his varied interests involved him. Besides, she had felt from the first that, in a community where the amenities of living could be obtained only at the cost of efforts as arduous as her husband's professional labors, such brief leisure as they could command should be used as an escape from immediate preoccupations, a flight to the life they always dreamed of living. Once or twice, now that this new life had actually drawn its magic circle about them, she had asked herself if she had done right. But hitherto such conjectures had been no more than the retrospective excursions of an active fancy. Now, for the first time, it startled her a little to find how little she knew of the material foundation on which her happiness was built. She glanced again at her husband, and was reassured by the composure of his face. Yet she felt the need of more definite grounds for her reassurance. But doesn't the suit worry you? Why have you never spoken to me about it? He answered both questions at once. I didn't speak of it at first because it did worry me. Annoyed me, rather. But it's all ancient history now. Your correspondent must have got hold of a back number of the Sentinel. She felt a quick thrill of relief. You mean it's over? He's lost his case? 
there was a just perceptible delay in Boyne's reply. The suit's been withdrawn. That's all. But she persisted, as if to exonerate herself from the inward charge of being too easily put off. Withdrawn because he had no chance? Oh, he had no chance, Boyne answered. She was still struggling with a dimly felt perplexity at the back of her thoughts. How long ago was it withdrawn? He paused as if with a slight return of his former uncertainty. I've just had the news now, but I've been expecting it. Just now, in one of your letters? Yes, in one of my letters. She made no answer and was aware only, after a short interval of waiting, that he had risen and, strolling across the room, had placed himself on the sofa at her side. She felt him, as he did so, pass an arm about her. She felt his hand seek hers and clasp it, and, turning slowly, drawn by the warmth of his cheek, she met the smiling clearness of his eyes. "'It's all right?' "'It's all right?' she questioned through the flood of her dissolving doubts. And, "'I give you my word. It was never righter.' He laughed back at her, holding her close. This is but the first two chapters from Afterward, by Edith Wharton, first published January 1910, Century Magazine. It's been my pleasure, of course, to bring you this week's episode, and the forthcoming second part of Afterward. Let it be known, we're currently exploring where to look outside of the public domain, and we're always open to suggestions for stories you'd like to hear. A needless and unsolicited, but in my opinion warranted, plug this week. Moon 8 by Brad Smith is an 8-bit reimagining of the Pink Floyd album Dark Side of the Moon, which was among the sounds I heard while preparing this week's episode. Amuse and beautify an hour by visiting rainwarrior.ca to see the nostalgic oddments he's arranged over the years. Finally, Nighttime Stories is a labor of love, love of literature, and the spoken word. Consider donating on our website at nighttimestories.org donate and or leaving us a review and rating on iTunes. Find me on Twitter at HBNightly. Nighttime Stories is released by Fuseli Media under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. More to come. And remember, there is no truth here. <laughs>